Welcome to the CTO studio. This week, I talked to Oded Cohen. We go deep into the ad tech space, uh, explosive growth, scaling, and we talk about cultural differences in our team. So enjoy. Well, I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. It, it looks something like this. Welcome to the CTO studio. I'm your host, Etienne de Bruin. The CTO studio is where we chat with CTOs building amazing products with incredible teams. Have you chatted with a CTO lately? Welcome to the CTO studio, Oded Cohen from Nativo. Thank you. CTO? Good to be here. Thank you for being with me. I almost said you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I've seen people fight to be in that chair. No, I haven't. So you're the CTO of Nativo. Yes. And you're based in LA. Yes. Uh, You moved to LA. Yes. From a country. Mm -hmm. Which one? Israel. And was that uh, to start Nativo or to join it or what happened? No. um, I was working in a startup. We went public, like a lot of Israelis, uh, Israeli companies. Mm-hmm. And then an American company acquired us. It was basically... You went public on the... Um, uh, NASDAQ. Isra- on NASDAQ, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's typically what What happened. was that? When? Well, no, which company? Uh, it was called back then MediaMind. Okay. Um, and then an American company bought us for half a billion dollars or something. Pretty mm. good that time. And uh, you bought five sailboats and a rocket ship, and you're, um, you're done. I wasn't the CTO back then. <laughs> I was a director. Was mm-hmm. this uh, Tel Aviv? Uh, around. Is that where the technology hub is? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like the LA metropolitan area. It's a bigger than Tel Aviv. It's specifically, it was called Herzliya. Herzliya. Yeah. And what do you miss the most about that town? Um... The town itself? Hmm. Or the vibe? Or... Um, I guess LA is not that different. I do miss you know, my friends, my family, those kind of things. But the tech environment is not all that different, at least not here in LA. It was different in Dallas. I moved originally to Dallas. Mm-hmm. In Dallas, uh, it wasn't as a you know, startup mentality. Mm. It was more. It could be the company I worked at as well. It was more like a corporate company, corporate mentality. Uh, here in LA, it feels a lot more like Israel. Maybe it's the mm. beach. Maybe it's the weather. Mm. Uh, and uh, did you move to Dallas with the acquisition or something else? Uh, a few months after, I was offered a job, a VP position, managing the engineering team there. Moved there, but then realized that I'm a startup guy. I want to, you know, start all over mm. again. Try to find like a small size early stage startup that i can join lead the tech team mm. what what does that mean i'm a startup guy means that i like the excitement the things that are not um i like the fast moving environment mm. i like to be have a you know meaningful impact on things not be afraid taking challenges um you know in a bigger environment a bigger company you know, you have to get approvals for th- more things. Mm. Um, you have to plan a lot of things ahead or somebody else is planning and you have to execute based on that. Someone, someone uh, I listened to a podcast this morning and someone described innovation inside of large companies. 
as the white blood cells that as soon as this new idea comes up, the white blood cells come <laughs> to destroy that intruder. Yeah. Is that, did you experience that? Well, I, most of my life I worked at startups, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but I did work in one bigger company. And again, the company that acquired us had, I think, a mentality of a bigger company, even though they were not a lot bigger than us originally. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I felt, you know, also in startups, you, you, you work on the product, you, want, you work on the tech, less bureaucracy, mm-hmm. less politics, you know, there's a sense of togetherness that is easier to achieve in a smaller company, mm-hmm. I think, sometimes. So I felt it was better for me, and I was right. And what this company that was acquired, um, the Mind? Me- Media Mind. Media Mind. What, what, was it an ad tech as well? Yeah, also. Wow. So Dallas, you decide I this isn't for me. Uh, yeah, I kind of realized that mm. you know I, you know I, I spent a year there and realized uh, you know I I should move on mm. and um, just looked for something. Did something for a few months with a friend from Israel. Tried something on our own, but then uh, found that he was an interesting opportunity. Talked to the CEO, was very excited, and decided to move with my family. Mm. And uh, your family being? Uh, wife, three kids, dog. <laughs> was the dog born in Israel? Yeah. <laughs> is, is, does this, the dog have a visa? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, uh, as a South African, I went through immigration, so I relate to, I don't know, did you, you came over on an L1 or, or a? Well, my wife is, uh, even though she's Israeli, she was originally born in the U.S. Mm. Uh, so it was, yeah, I did come on an L1 originally, but, you know, I got a green card very mm-hmm. quickly. Mm. Immigration was actually very friendly to me, in, <laughs> at least in my case. Wow. It was very easy. All my kids are U.S., I mean, are U.S. citizens. So it's not How old are they? Are they? Were they born here? No, two were born in Israel, one was okay. born here. And then how often do you go back to... Once or twice a year. Okay. Uh, sort of for family trips. and Yeah. And then you, sounds like you said your family is still there, like friends and families. And yeah. So, Nativo, you joined as CTO? Uh, I joined as a senior vice president of engineering. Nice. But it's really, you know, it's, it's the same job. The title is just... Yeah. Uh, and, and at that point... Oh, and is that still, you're still the SVP of engineering? I'm the CTO now. Oh, okay. It's so there's a title diff- change. Okay. And at that, when, at the point that you joined, did they already have product market fit and customers and all that? Or were you? We didn't have any product. Huh. The CEO was a product guy. Okay. And um, he was also managing the engineering team back then. It was a small, it was like 15 people maybe. I had six or seven when I joined. Uh, already managed 70 people before, but again, yeah, this was yeah, like, for yeah. me, it was a great opportunity to go yeah. back and put my hands awesome. into the, the tech. Um, so no, there was no product. There was no marketing. Uh, there was already sales and kind of uh, some operation. Uh, I guess there was marketing, but the guy was doing marketing and strategy and operation altogether. So it's just like a typical startup, right? Mm. You have one person doing a lot of, yes. wears a lot of hats. Yes. Same goes in the engineering team. I had wow. six, seven people. They were kind of doing multiple things at the beginning. And so when you say you had sales, was it more like a consulting agency thing then? or So our business is um, 
there's two sides of our business. One is the publisher. We provide technology so they can monetize their site using native advertising, hence the name Nativo, um, or sponsor content. And so there's a sell side with publishers, getting them to adopt our technology. Although we, we call it more BD, business development, because it's, it's not necessarily that the majority of the business is coming from that side in terms of the revenue. The part of the revenue is coming mostly from the advertisers, the guy, the people that actually buy and want to monetize those sites or want to put their ads there. Uh, so we have a sales team that also goes directly after advertisers. We also, you know, the sales team also work with, um, now we also, you know, we're beyond just uh, a SaaS platform. We also, what we call the, um, an SSP, supply side platform. So we have partners that, are the buying platforms that serves the advertiser that are bidding into our platform. Mm. So we auction on behalf of the publisher um, their inventory, so whoever pays the most can can get to serve their ads on the publisher site. And the publisher's inventory is then typically content, right? So native advertising, the idea behind native advertising is as opposed to what we call display banners, mm-hmm. uh, is more native to the site in the sense that you go to a site, you go to a news site, cnn.com, whatever. You're looking for articles to read. So as you're searching for articles, you're looking for headlines, right? Preview images, things like mm-hmm. that. Then the native advertising will will have this format. It will basically be a headline and an image promoting something that is sponsored as opposed to something that is editorial. Mm-hmm. The interesting part of our, our solution, which is unique, is that once you decided this is interesting for you to read, when you actually click on it, as opposed to a banner where it will send you to some other site, you can actually read the article on the same site. Oh. So it's the true full native experience. Mm. So native being sort of it's a, it's a fully baked in integrated experience in the site, yeah. And then are you are you uh, tracking sort of the scroll through and so typically in advertising most. Uh, companies, they can track only the unit that the user will click on, uh, which is the banners or the video or something like that. Because we actually also serve the content itself, the article, then we actually track a lot of more deeper engagement, like how many, how much time you spend on the page, your scroll depth, how fast you scrolled, um, mm. what type of interaction you did with the article. Maybe you click from that article to go eventually to some you know, article, mm. uh, advertiser side. So we track a lot of, mm. we have like over a hundred metrics that we track. And is that the, is that sort of the, the value add is as an advertiser, I can then measure the success of my ads on the publisher side? I think one of the interesting, so think about it like this. Um, if I'm an advertiser, um, the question is what you are after. If you're after, somebody buying a product, like you're an e-commerce site, then, you know, maybe there's a better way. Maybe you go to Google to, you know, buy keywords. But if you're, if you want to influence opinion, if there's a longer sell cycle, Mm -hmm. if you're, let's say you're a car manufacturer company, right? Nobody buys a car by clicking on a banner. Mm -hmm. Then you want to expose the user to some interesting content. Now, where do you find your users? You can go to Facebook, maybe. It's actually now more, more and more expensive. Or just go to where they are, buy, you know, buy a sponsor article on cars related sites. So, and then think about it, me as a user, I went to a 
cars related sites there's articles about you know cool features in Prada in different cars whatever say I'm Toyota I have a new feature in some Prius or whatever now I'm going to write an interesting article about it and then I'm going to feature it through our through my platform I'm going to promote it and pay the publisher publisher on that or going to run it across a lot of different sites like that As a user, you know, it might be very interesting for me to read mm. because what's the difference really? Like everything behind all those products, there are companies, but mm. now I know it's sponsored at least, right? It's mm. very clear that it's sponsored, but I get some interesting information. So I'm able to, as a brand, I'm able to influence um, a potential buyer. Earlier, what we call in the funnel, not like at the end maybe, where it's like he's already searching for something. That's usually mm. what, you know. But is there a way for the brand to measure how well their sponsored content did on some publisher's site. Yeah. yeah. So we track everything from yeah. obviously people mm. clicking, how much time they read the article, mm. how many people then later went to the advertiser site. We can also track if they register on the advertiser site mm. later on because of it. Uh, we also did various case studies to, to, to show that, um, you know, you, you have an exposed group and a non-exposed group, and then you put a survey and you check what is the lift in terms of you know my considering to buy something mm. or how favor favorable I see that brand or I consider the brand now so we've done a lot of that and that proved to be very very good uh, a lot better than banners or display better than Facebook and and other platforms as well is so is this similar to outbrain so outbrain and tabula by the way both Israeli firms as well I mean we're not Israeli Um, are doing something that might look similar. It's basically the bottom of the article. Mm, you know, yeah. you might be interested in that as well. Their business is mostly um, publishers and sometimes brands trying to buy traffic into their site. Not necessarily more about the, you know, influencing and providing necessarily a lot okay. of value. Okay. So they're not direct competitors, I would say. I wouldn't say there's no, there's complete, you know, I mean, there's some interesting overlap, but their their business is a bit different so so the the um the advertiser so if i the advertiser could potentially just go straight to the publisher right and say, "We want to Toyota could go to cars dot com and say we want to yeah. do articles, but you're providing sort of the multi sided platform exactly to bid and yeah, to try to run um You know one article on one site, yeah, you can come up with an agreement with a publisher trying to run it on a hundred sites and get the the reach that you need mm. to reach a large audience. plus we do a lot of other things. We can let you you know a b test things. you can you know create different headlines, different images, and then our system through kind of like a machine learning algorithm will figure out what is actually working better for you, what is driving mm. whatever you want to drive, whether it's click or engagement is is better suited. You can, cre- you can create variations of the same content just with different structure and maybe wording and you can see how it impacts. Which leads to my next question, which was, do you, ha- do you know the secret formula for writing the best type of article? Uh, we were just joking about it today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the clickbait. <laughs> yeah. Just put like a certain type of picture. Yeah. Uh, Five things, oh, there's a few things there's those are like the outprintable thing usually um this guy thought about that you wouldn't under you wouldn't real you wouldn't uh imagine what happened next, 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Those are so. And then you click it, and it's like, yeah, the, you have the, to see what happens next. Yeah. Or, so yeah, so we typically don't deal with those type of. Um, uh, and that's why, by the way, why our publishers uh, like us very much, um, so much because we work with like bigger brands. And again, the goal is not to do clickbaits. It's sitting inside a feed of a, of a site. Like we work with big publishers. So it's not like at the bottom of the article, it could be, you know, the third article on the homepage. Mm. So, you know, we have a team that helps advertise the right uh, things in the right way without making it completely, you know, shady, mm. clickbaity. We have high standards in terms of what type of images we approve mm. and those kind of things. So do you also insert those article headlines in inside of an article? No, we don't do yeah, that. Yeah, because that is so <laughs> annoying. Yeah. I'm trying to read this article and all then I see every three paragraphs is some other article I have to read. Oh, wait, wait. That we might be doing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you meant like, you know, when they highlight words and then when you hover it, it gives you an ad. Oh, uh, no. no okay, I, so there I, are, it is up to the publishers to some degree, uh, what we call a middle of the article. So as you read, there could be in between a promotion to another article. It's possible to do that. Um, I mean, it's, it's not it's, very common, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's not related. Like for us, it's, we work with the publishers to try and get the best result. And, you know, sometimes we're the one helping the publisher mm. not making bad decisions, but you know, sometimes, I mean, the, the publisher, the publishers in general are at a lot of stress, a lot of pressure because mm. a lot of the money is being channeled now to Facebook, uh, Google, and now Amazon. Mm. So they see a lot of the, yeah, so they the, are tempted to just, they are tempted to do a lot of bad things. And for them, they have to just simply copy and paste snippets into their templates. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not easy to be a publisher these days. Mm. And I think one of our goals is to help them do the right things. And we do think that native advertising is a better user experience than banners. Uh, we don't do things like um, that Google now blocks anyway, by the way, uh, on Chrome, which is like uh, autoplay sound on. We don't do sticky players where you scroll and then the player, the video player sticks on the right and stays and don't let you go. So we, we try to be the least intrusive as we can uh, and the most valuable that we can for public, for the, the user. Mm. We, we have technology to identify, we partner with other companies for, on some of those things to identify the context of the article so we can actually give you a more relevant article. Uh, so if you read an article about sports, we might give you something related to that, but not baby diapers, for example, because you search baby diapers before on Amazon. I read an interesting article, this was years ago, when AOL was acquiring all these web properties and uh, basically putting ads on a bass fishing website for model trains because they were able to track that people who are, who are into bass fishing are likely also into yeah. model trains. It's possible. But that was more banner, that was banner advertising, yeah. it wasn't. So your team, so tell me a little bit about CTOing this company. So, um, as I said, I was an SVP of engineering. Uh, so it's not like the role changed dramatically. I'm still managing the engineering team. 
Um, I have now 40 people. So the team grew over, you know, the course of about five years. Um, I'm obviously working a lot with product. Product is actually a separate team that reports still to the CEO. And Don't you hate that when that happens? Actually not. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I work very, like, Closely, closely with the product, with, yeah. head of product, mm. so we were peers, and it doesn't really matter for mm. me. To be honest, whether he would report to me or not, it doesn't really matter. Mm. Um, I think we have good relationships, so that's what matters. And, um, you know, I'm still a very technical guy, so I'll get involved. Um, I even write code here and there. Uh, but, do you, not, but do you deploy it? Um Actually, some cases, yeah. Oh. I mean, we do have, uh, we're actually moving more and more towards team deploy their own, although mm. we have a DevOps, mm. we're moving more and more towards team deploy their own uh, product. Mm. So we're kind of slowly moving towards that as opposed to DevOps. And so, yeah, I do have some legacy stuff that I still kind of help maintain and, you know, I've deployed it every once in a while. But in general, obviously, I'm not doing a lot of coding. But I am highly involved in a lot of the technical architecture decisions mm-hmm. and not at all yeah, which teams, is but. which is which is which would be expected yeah where where is all of this going? you mean with nativo well, I guess with ad tech and then nativo i suppose um so because are people i know that my brain has has a a triggered response when I see sponsored content. So, and I'm just wondering if you meaning resentment, <laughs> yeah, or just beware, or there's like yeah. a yellow flag. It's very seldomly that I. So the clickbait things worked on me for a while, and then yes. it's like, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. And we actually saw some of that impact. So um, we saw that originally we only did, you click, you read the article, and there's not a lot of native advertising beyond us. But the publisher wanted to sell, you click, you go to the advertiser site because it, would, it was easier to sell because the mm. advertiser know, you know, knew how to you know, buy To measure this, that. Yeah. Right. And so what we saw was in the early days is that once publishers started running those things and they were running it in the same exact places, users were basically, it actually impacted the interaction with our ads as well, which were click to read the article in the site because the user couldn't tell. So it's definitely as more and more companies doing native and more and more doing have we have bad actors, that's not good for us. But in general, advertising still works. Whether you like it or not, it works. And it's always, you know, if you ask anybody, are you impacted by advertising? No, I'm, I'm not. No, for damn but, sure you But are. the reality is everybody's... Uh, the it, brain can't unsee what it has seen. Yeah. And look, we do see consistently people clicking and reading the article. So it's not like they click and say, oh, somebody fooled me. And so I think that, you know, there is still a lot of value in that. And, um, you know, in, in Facebook, you know that some of those posts are sponsored, right? But sometimes they're like interesting. Not a lot nowadays. Now you know that, again, it's, it, it changes over time, I agree, but I actually had a case where I clicked on something that was sponsored that was ours and I didn't realize it. Wow. So, look, and I'm not clicking on ads. Now, I know never to click on banners. Mm. I know never to click on the Outbrain Tabula bottom of article at this point because, you know, 99% of the time is just somebody's 
trying to get me to go to a page that has 20 slides on different pages mm. and every page has like 50 ads so they can monetize it. And but, You'll never guess what they look like today. Yeah, but, or they give you an image of some celebrity and then you have to go through 30 pages to, to get, get to, to it, the, right? So now the reality is it still works because people are still making money out of it. Well, and it's a percentage game, right? Right. Uh, so I'm not sure we're necessarily the typical people, but even, again, if you're doing a good job, um, you know, we, had, we have good publishers that are including, you know, things like Wall Street Journal and um, that they can create sponsored content that is high quality and that people actually interact with because it's interesting. Do you think that people, do you think that these sites that are putting their content behind paywalls, is, 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 is that a trend? Is that an experiment? Uh, what is the, what's happening there? Is it, des- is it the final so, desperate Hail Mary or? That's interesting. I, I actually heard that at least for uh, New York Times, it actually works pretty well now. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you talk about economics, typically you, uh, there's the theory of, you know, how do I get the most amount of value from each person? But obviously not everybody's willing to pay the same amount. So you, you know, you start with a certain price and then you give discounts and like, so the, the early adopters will be willing to pay a high amount of money and slowly you kind of, and then you put some, I don't know, coupons. Most people won't buy it, but then it, you capture a few, few more people that mm. are willing to pay lower price. Um, without losing the people that are willing to pay the higher price. So to some degree, it's kind of like that. I mean, it's um, let me capture from people that are very interested in just you know reading the content, they value my brand, and they're willing to pay for it. And, and at the same time, I'm not going to lose the people that are not willing to pay, but then I'm going to monetize them through ads. Think about um, the gaming industry and micropayments. Kind of like the same, right? You give it for free, and then using micropayments, you're getting different values from different people. Um, yeah, there's a distinct moment where I feel like the buck ninety nine that they want from me, the value is super clear. Like I, I subscribe to the New York Times mobile app um, because of some promotion. I think it was seven ninety nine for three months or something, yeah. and. I rem- I started feeling guilty that I wasn't reading the articles, and now I'm like it's only seven bucks, but eight bucks. But but there's just this weird thing that happens in my brain where I f- now feel like I almost resent the New York Times because I'm not reading all these articles. I mean, I'm scanning the headlines, but headlines that I feel like I can get anywhere. I'll give you an example uh, for me with Hulu, for example. We've used to have the $10 with ads and then we realized those ads are annoying and we can afford that extra $5 and so now we have it without. Um, I did have cases where I've signed in for some sites. The problem I think with publishers is that again some of them have, the, so New York Times have a brand name, mm. right? So they can do that. But a lot of the other sites, they're not that important and people maybe, you know, read five or ten different sites and paying for all five or ten will be very expensive. So I think it can work for maybe some. Mm. I'm not sure it's going to be uh, working for the majority. And, mm. and to be honest, that's why I tell people, hey, you know, you're doing ads. Well, the reality is without ads, you won't have free internet. And the whole 
idea behind the internet is that somebody sends you a link and you can go and you can search the web for other things and you don't have to go through a a paywall for every little article that you read. In order to sustain that business, somebody has to pay. So I think advertising is a good compromise and if it works, that's fine. The challenge right now, again, is that, you know, the Google, Facebook, Amazon of the world are consuming a lot of that revenue. So now publishers are under a lot of pressure, Mm. including good publishers that produce really high quality content, Mm. but they are not able to sell the ads at the same amount of money before because somebody else offers it with some other, you know, Google has the data, Facebook has data on the person, or Google has intent. Amazon now has also what you want to purchase or your purchase history. So they have a lot of data. Publishers, they could create some of that. But again, as a single publisher, try to compete with the vast audience or the reach that some of those big platform, tech platform has, it's very hard. So again, it can work for some publishers, mm. but they probably still have to rely on ads. Yeah, and I think generally publishers are just in, a, in the red zone or the, yeah. the yellow zone. Yeah, I agree. Not easy. The, uh, I, I, when the new year started, I decided to start using Firefox and um, decided to turn off tracking and yeah, holy moly, sites will not render, man. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, I didn't. Know I that. mean, I, I mean, and actually, the worst culprit is Google. And when I go to any like YouTube, or oh, they block. So much of it gets blocked. Look again. I understand the resentment from ads, but again, you have to look at them from the other side. It's like they have to make money out of something, and then. What do you prefer they make money out of? Like, that's, you know, that's reasonable. Most people won't, won't pay. I gladly pay the YouTube's uh, premium. Right, but this is a tech, big tech, pl- big tech platform. But again, yeah, but how many general, sites you yeah, go to? Yeah. You go to five or 10 sites or somebody just sends you an, a link like Business Insider now has a paywall. Yes. And I get links to those. And, you know, I just want to read the article. I'm not going to buy a subscription right now. I'm not, I'm not. But so I understand they're, this model here, but you know, um, I'm not I'm not resenting mm. that thing. To be honest, you know, we work to find ways for publishers to monetize even people are, which are blocking ads. So we we work towards that as well because we think that again, you're using a you're using a service from somebody, and that's the way for them mm. to make money. Mm. Now, again, I think publishers created some of that problem because they created all that mess, too many ads. Um, bad ads, all those things. So they created some of that problem, but you know there should be somewhere in the middle where people mm. are accepting that there's you know reasonable amount of ads that are not in their face. They're not forcing. They're not cheating them to click on something uh, which exists as well. Not blasting the sounds off suddenly because some mm. video ad started. Mm. So there's some way between that can work for users and work well, for I th- and I think the I think if the if the result of this is the quality of ads increasing then yeah. everyone's happy yeah so how are you innovating in this space like the- uh, so one of the interesting thing about uh, that I learned in the last two companies I worked at especially in startups that are not you know have an exit within two or three years or something is that you come up with a good idea which Nativo kind of pioneered that area of native advertising even, even before the name native advertising existed. Um, and you, you build it, you're kind of the first to market, you get good adoption. At some point the market you know, reacts, 
then all the followers comes in. Some are bigger, some are smaller. And then now it's a competition. If you stay in that situation, you end up, uh, you won't be able to continue and grow mm. uh, as a company. And eventually you'll just be one of the others. Mm. Now the challenge is that was your core thing as a company. And it's very hard to suddenly, as a startup, which is already limited resources, put effort in investing in a new line of product or something almost like a mini startup within your company. And what I learned is that you have to make those decisions at some point because otherwise the growth curves will kind of die out and then you'll die out with mm. it. So what I like about Nativo, which also happened in my previous company, is that you know that's kind of in the core blood of our CEO, the understanding of that. And then he was pushing a lot around, okay, how do we innovate? Where do we go next? Uh, using our strength and what we do best. Uh, and then so we did, in the last year and a half, effectively started two, two new lines of product. One is more public, one is not officially public yet. One is more for the brands um, and focus on content and making them understand how their content is working. So one of the interesting part is that brands write a lot of articles. They write a lot of content nowadays. Usually they put it on their site and then they try through social means, social media or something to mm -hmm. get people mm -hmm. to interact with it. But it's not as easy as it used to be before because Facebook changed their algorithm. Yeah. Now it's more expensive. And to be honest, they don't even know what, what content works better for their brand. Like they don't know what article maybe is driving most people to register for something. So we have a product that allows them to do that on their site. They, you know, we, um, we crawl all their sites. We know how the, what all the articles that they have, all the videos that they have. We know all the social stats about them. We know everything that is happening on their site. And then we can tell them, though, which of those articles are typically driving mm. more people doing something they like. Wow. And the interesting part of it, why is it important for us, is that if we identify for them that this article is really doing well, uh, proportionally, higher, why higher wouldn't you just amplify it? Yeah. Maybe it's not getting enough attention. Maybe it's mm. like one out of 10 users that read it are registering your site, but it's not getting enough attention. Now use Nativo's platform to just, you know, um, uh, amplify it across publishers. But the ability for you to scan my, my site as a brand and say, this is what we recommend. This, this has a something score. You should probably amplify it or... You know that that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and and know, that and so that's one of your innovations is to help brands understand what content yeah. is is rank is somehow good content. Yeah, leveraging all your years or data, you know, all the data all you the have, huge investment that you made yeah. creating all that content, understanding even what content you have on all your sites. Some of those brands have multiple sites, <coughs> in multiple regions, countries. And so we can actually aggregate it all to one place. Very cool platform. Also visually very exciting to kind of play with it. And so it is getting a lot of good you know, um, feedback. And so that's one area around the brand. And you know, it's, it's almost like theoretically it could be a new line of business, completely new company. But it kind of, like, kind of completes our overall offering around content and content marketing which is what we are very strong at compared to some of our competitors. Um, so that's one part. 
and um, yeah, it's it's official. It's mm-hmm. launched, and it's like we, is it, we get is it is it called Nativa? It's called Content Q. Content Q. Yeah. Dot com. Yeah, it's part of Nativo. <laughs> it's under Nativo.com, but uh, there was okay. a decision to have like a different um, brand name for that part of the product. Is it possible to? Um, I know if I look at social media platforms like Buffer and these things, which is obviously a B two C play, I think, mm-hmm. uh, or Buzz Buzz uh, Buzz Sumo. Okay. Um, is it possible to have your system identify articles on other sites that if you were to repurpose that content, that it could potentially benefit you? So we, um, one of the things that we offer in the platform is um, we do, we, since we, I mean, scanning and you know, seeing what content each brand has, we can do without anybody's permission. I mean, it's just it's public, it's public web. Yeah. Right? So we typically also scan um, uh, multiple uh, relevant uh, competitors. So we can show you um, mm. what is your competitors are doing. Uh, we can show you some of the stats. We can obviously, you know, you, if, if you didn't put our tag on your site, we don't know the stats on the site, but we, don't, we do know how those articles are doing in social media. Uh, so we, do, we can provide you more on overall the market. We can give you benchmarks and things like that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what mm-hmm. we're doing right now mm-hmm. with that. I mean, but there's there's obviously a lot of way to move forward with that in other areas, and so yeah, it's, it's I, very I I really like the scanning. Uh, I mean, I feel like that is a that is a truly sort of next level innovation because your 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 defensible space there is the data that you've amassed on yeah. what works and what doesn't work, and now you're just packaging that. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about your infrastructure, like what, how you're building it and then how you're scaling? Because I, yeah. f- I have a couple of friends in the ad tech space and they seem to always be scaling. It's crazy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely ad tech is a lot of, like the majority, the, the biggest challenge is scale. Um, you know, you're talking about our platform is handling billions of calls a day and generates terabytes of data a day. And um, so there's interesting challenges around that. Uh, interestingly enough, it's very similar, though, between EdTech. So the fact that we're native and the, like we do have our own interesting challenges because we are native and because we're dealing with content. But the scale challenge is very similar. The fact that we auction. So we get mm-hmm. a call and we have to auction it to 10, 20 bidders or whatever and wait before we reply. And so that's also an interesting challenge around scale because... You get a billion calls, but that translates into 20 billion calls that you have to make mm. yourself. <laughs> um, our tech on, the, on that side of the, of the business, um, we're based, we're, you know, we're a Java stack, uh, relying on you know, async IO processes or mechanisms so we can leverage the servers with more requests you know, per second. Uh, we build, um, the system is built fully distributed, so you can add more servers you want. You can add more servers in different regions of the globe. We're running on AWS. We're, um, using Terraform or, uh, we run on, um, oh, we, we have auto scaling, so it's actually very interesting. It's very cool to see. I mean, I came from previous company. There was, you know, AWS just started. Mm. Uh, so we were hosting our own 
uh, servers and, you know, there was no other skill. You had to buy the servers and everything. And being now it's, you know, um, you know, seeing how the system reacts, you know, during the day, during the night, big campaigns, small campaigns, how the system automatically adds and removes servers. It's pretty cool. Um, so it's all built in. Um, we heavily rely, you have to rely on strong caching layer. Uh, we use a product called Aerospike, which is also... Aero? Aerospike. Okay. Extremely common in ad tech. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do some publicity. Um, this is like a very fast key value storage. Um, has cross data center replications. So, you know, you save entity in one place, it goes to another region automatically. Sub-millisecond. So which that? Read, read writes is on the average... 400 microseconds or something like that. Um, 400 microseconds. And uh, generally, that's a pretty expensive layer, right? Um, so it's not cheap, obviously. I mean, it, But as com- comparably, I find that if you're using managed caching, you know, it's... It's, it's not managed. I mean, we, the product is, we have to pay a license, but we manage that ourselves okay, inside. Okay, okay so you, you, you license yeah, from... You, in that level of... Uh, yeah, you of, can... Performance, the servers actually have to be next to our ad servers. Mm, they mm. can't have them somewhere else. We actually, mm. typically you're being, like people recommend you for redundancy purposes to put uh, some servers on one um, availability zone in AWS and some server on another availability zone in it. The problem is if you try to do that with that type of caching layer, you're going to pay for network mm, and mm, you will not get the sub millisecond. Mm. So what you do is you put every, everything in a given region, you put in one availability zone, you just have redundancy between regions or you create a separate pod in another availability zone. But everything has to be very close, as close as possible together to achieve that performance. So we do that. Um, even with that, because in the scale that we are, there's a lot of different metadata and entities that we have to use in order to make a decision on a single call. So even with the with sub-millisecond, you still don't want to call for every entity on every call. So you still have some caching layer inside that is smart inside the servers themselves. Obviously, that's a smaller, limited um, amount, but it's significant because, you know, even if you keep, let's say you keep an entity for... 10, 20, 30 seconds in memory. Those 30 seconds, you use that entity, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of times, instead of calling your caching layer outside, it's still faster, a lot faster. You reduce the load from your caching layer. So you still have, so you have two layers of cache, one inside the server, one outside. Still, the outside still gets, you know, bombarded with a lot of requests anyway, but it's still, still, you know, can save costs, can get you better performance, but then the 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 balance between what's what you keep in memory for thirty seconds and then the cache outside the system. I mean, that's got to be a an so interesting. So there, there there is type of, there is certain type. You have to. By the way, that's also the you know the dirty secret. People think that you know oh yeah you're just gonna you know add, throw a few more servers or you know add some memory or more CPU and I'm gonna solve my scaling issue. No, either you're going to spend a tremendous amount of money or you're not even going to mm. you know, solve the problem. You still have to think about what you're doing. And that's kind of like the, the dirty secret about, you know, cloud doesn't solve the problem and all the amazing products, key value storages, NoSQL, all the products that have evolved in the last 10 or 15 years, 
you still have to think about how, what you do. Mm-hmm. So there's certain entities that there's no point in caching in the side of the server memory because they're, the amount of entities that exist are just too large mm-hmm. and the likelihood of you hitting the same entity again uh, is, is so minute that it's not worth it. But there are certain entities that while you don't want to keep them all the time in cache because eventually it's going to be too large, you know, if you keep them for a certain amount of time, then you're going to get huge uh, impact. So again, there's like, you know, you have to think about how you do things. And is your, so is your general cash expiry uh, uh, rule time-based? So there's a few ways to do it. So in, in EdTech, or so let's say I launch a campaign and then I came and said, oh, I want to change the headline of my ad. Does it really have to happen the minute I press save or it can happen after a few seconds? It doesn't really matter. Doesn't it have to happen in all the servers at the same time or can it propagate in a few seconds all the servers have it? So one of the benefit of, or the interesting part of Nantech or serving ads is that you do have that opportunity to do that which gives you some flexibility in how do you build some of those solutions. So there's a few options. Option one is somebody saves an update something and then you blast all the servers and tell them, hey, this entity has changed, refetch it. Now you probably should be very careful with that because you don't want all the servers all together suddenly do that, right? So maybe you add some randomness so that um, the servers are not fetching all at the same time. But at the same time, do you really bother with... um, you know, telling all the ad servers and be bothered with bombarding them with those messages all the time. What if every few seconds, every 10, 20, whatever, they refetch it anyway? Does it matter? Mm. It probably doesn't matter. And then you avoid having to build another piece mm. that you have to maintain. That's another option. Yeah. In our case, we have like a range. And again, there's, you have to have randomness. It's critical to have randomness. If not, you get spikes. Um, so each server fetches it in different time and then both the load on your caching layer is, is more aligned. You want flat lines, you don't want spikes. And then if one server is a bit struggling, the rest are not, then it's overall the performance is, is good. Or one request is struggling, but the other requests on that server is, are not, is not, are not. There's a lot more complexity. No, about, of course, of course. You know, it's, you know. I love it. No, I love, you know. uh, I love these discussions. Um, so are you, you, you basically, do you have a VP engineering? Do you have DevOps people? Do you? So I don't have a VP engineering. I actually am the, effectively the manager of that, that engineer. You have directors. So I have like four or five teams and directors, and they're very strong technical. They grew up inside, either inside the team or that was their core. <coughs> so they're, um, all our team is very technical, including the managers. I do have a DevOps team. Um, as well, but no, I don't have a VP engineer. Mm. At this point, I think that's almost uh, redundant. Uh, to be honest, I mean, it, as a CTO, you can decide where your attention is. Um, my attention is a lot more inbound than outbound, to be honest. And I like it. I like is, technology. Is more inbound? Inbound okay. into the company. Um, how, how do you make sure that you aren't missing what's coming down, what's coming over the hill? So first of all, again, I have, I mean, I think my team itself is, you know, there, a lot of the innovation is also coming from the mm. team, not just from me, but obviously I mean, I read, I, I go to places. So, but I'm, again, I'm very, um, focused on the company. Um, 
not necessarily. I mean, it's the first time I do this. <laughs> uh, this, yeah, this wow. is like, a, like you know, podcast, podcast or something. Obviously, um, how, do you, how do you how do, how's it going? Pretty well. <laughs> I should ask you, right? How is it going? I love it. <laughs> I think it's awesome. Yeah. So, um, I think that again, I have smart people in my team. They're also, and and it's not even the managers. I mean, a lot of the interesting decision and suggestion came from the team itself. Mm. Now, I I think I'm good at challenging uh, some of that and making sure that we're making the right decisions. Is but that your Israeli roots? Probably. <laughs> what is the number one cultural characteristic that you bring to the team that it makes the team a better team but frustrates the hell out of them? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very... Uh, I'm very um, straightforward, right? <laughs> so you do what I was going to say, right? But yeah, I'm like... Um, South Africans are blamed for that as well. Yeah, so I, to, I actually think that for tech, that's why I think Israel works really well in tech because you actually can have a lot of good, interesting ideas coming from different levels. So um, I had cases in other companies that, you know, in Israel, like, you sit with a CEO, it doesn't matter if you're like just an engineer. I mean, it's not just, just like one of the employees and you think that it's wrong and you can say, I think you're wrong and this is why and whatever. And Israel is going to yell as well, but I'm just kidding. But, um, but it's not being perceived as something bad. I mean, look, you obviously need to do it in a polite manner, but um, the idea is to hear what people think. Mm. Um, and I think for tech, that's like super important. Do you think that your 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 pushback and and the way you approach your team? Um, I'm assuming that some of them find it harder to work with someone like that, and have left. And some people have have found it hard to work like that, but have grown and have become better for it. Is that what you've seen? Um, and maybe not <clears throat> specifically Nativo. Maybe just like. Interesting. In I, I didn't think about that. Um, I do try to control some of that, obviously. <laughs> but as I tell some of my, I mean, the, the idea is that I think you need to understand what your weaknesses are, or what like things that you you know you need to be aware of. Um, I think, and I hope my team is aware that while I can be you know very vocal and obviously have you know strong opinions about things, I also um, you know. There's no hard feelings. Like mm, we're talking about mm, technology, mm. and if somebody has a better idea, mm. I think I'm very good at giving credit to people. <laughs> mm. uh, maybe not. I mean, I, I got this uh, from some people saying that I'm, I'm a lot of time focusing on the bad. Amazing, right? Because I'm whatever works well. I mean, yeah. Why would I put my attention there? It worked you know, well, but so I tend to focus on when things are not working well, and then I put a lot of my energy there. But I don't know if people are aware, but whenever somebody will come up with the idea. Um, whenever I talk about it, from not, not with them even, from outside my team, I'm so happy to say that it's not mm, like uh, that my, it's coming from my yeah, team. Yeah. I think that's like for me, it's like the best thing yeah. um, that you know people from my team gets the credit for that. Because mm. you know, I you know, if the team is doing well, I'm gonna get the credit overall anyway. So I don't really need mm. that. So I think that uh, really, um, I, and again, I don't know. I mean, I'm. I hope people are, are aware of that. But, mm -hmm. um, no, I, uh, I understand. Uh, as a South African CTO, I, I had a team of mostly Americans, and we were a young startup, and 
uh, I'll never forget. I had a moment. I, I took them on a retreat, so mm-hmm. we can the engineering team can just like bond. breathe a bit and bond. And it was the third or fourth time I did that. And on the first night, we had this huge argument, and it exploded because. I was asking for my team to collaborate on a new idea and they said basically in no uncertain terms that it doesn't it doesn't matter if we collaborate with you because you're just going to mm. do what you want anyway. And my whole house of cards, this oh. beautiful collaborative thing that I thought I was building came t- tumbling down for me and I realized I was living in my own little world of yeah. thinking that I'm this collaborative servant leader and my team was was perceiving me completely differently, and I had this moment, and I talk about this a lot. I was I was we were in the kitchen of this house, and I was on the one side of the kitchen, and they were all on the other side, and it was like open, open season, open season <laughs> after you, <laughs> and it was a it was a it was a seminal moment in my growth as a leader, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, to to you know to understand that my team usually when there's a confrontation uh, I see it as a great thing and I start yeah. engaging and I speak louder and I wave my hands more. But there's many people on my team who are when there is conflict they are they withdraw. They retreat. Yeah. And so that was a tough, tough enlightenment for me. Yeah. So again, I'm aware. And so I think that I am trying in certain situations, especially when I recognize certain people are a bit more kind of a reserved um, to themselves. Uh, but overall, at least as far as I'm aware, it is working well. And um, so yeah, I love it. Well, Oded, this was. That's it. I mean, I feel like this was just the intro. Yeah. <laughs> now let me ask you my questions. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. This was amazing. Thank you very much for coming out and joining me last minute. And uh, this was really interesting. Great. Thank you. It was great. Thanks. Have you chatted with the CTO lately? Hi, thank you for listening to the CTO studio. If you don't mind, take a quick second and please rate and review the show. It helps us a lot. Go to thectostudio.com. For more information on what we're doing at 7CTOs, we also have a video or two for you that could be a helpful resource for you as you're managing your company. So thank you for listening.